0: Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Randy Rasmussen. Mr. Rasmussen is the author of Stanley Kubrick, Seven Films Analyzed.
1: Well, I suppose uh, I should say that the first Kubrick movie I ever saw was A Clockwork Orange. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this was back in the early 70s. And um, I I guess I was intrigued by the poster to start with. Um, Then... I started taking notes. I, I was intrigued by the movie, and I started looking for other Kubrick films. That I, I just started taking notes. I don't know why they were uh, his. Uh, his way of presenting things was so intriguing to me that um, over the next couple of decades, I started taking notes each new film I saw. And by the time we reached Full Metal Jacket, I decided well, I'd read a number of books about Kubrick or about his mm-hmm. work. And there were so many different opinions out there, so many different ways of, of interpreting his films that I thought, well, I might as well try to work up one of my own. And at that point, uh, *Full Metal Jacket* is when I started to try to formalize my impressions.
0: Yeah, uh, one thing that people bring up a lot with Kubrick is that he was his his films are on the surface quite quite different and quite he's quite versatile in terms of the genres that he chooses to work in and, and how he plays with genre. Uh, but thematically, what, what are the threads that you find that are similar in these works?
1: Well, there's usually a distinction between, at least the way I word it, uh, individual man is an individual and, and institutional man, if you want to put it that way, or collective, uh, the role they play in society. That's the case in Doctor Strangelove in Barry Lyndon, in just about any film you can imagine and uh, he seems to be indicating or seems to explore the idea that even in an official capacity um the uh his characters are remain individuals and they have impact uh on the role they play um in Dr. Strangelove, for example, the um, General Ripper basically acts on his own sexual problems. He, he imposes that on Sack. He imposes that on the role he plays. Hmm. Dr. Strangelove does the same thing, uh, the character. Um, that's the case all the way through Eyes Wide Shut, where uh, uh, Bill Harford, played by Tom Cruise, It's not really an institutional character, but he uses his his, uh, status as a doctor a number of times in illicit ways. Mm. Um, I guess that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of Kubrick's work is that uh, his characters are all trying to control their worlds, take some sort of charge of uh, the worlds around them. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, this is successful in various ways. That goes all the way back to the killing and killer's kiss. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnny Clay, uh, played by Sterling Hayden, and his master plan to uh, rip off a racetrack. Uh, so it's basically the interplay of institutional and individual man in different environments. Like you said, he his movies do not repeat settings you know there are right. natural settings there's man-made settings there's institutions there's outer space there's everything but the struggle of his characters to take control of their world is kind of the same in different variations in different settings
0: right and maybe you're uh maybe you disagree with this point of view but <clears throat> there's an element to Kubrick's work that people that love him and the people that criticize him say, in equal measure, say is very cold and distant, like the like Full Metal Jacket, for instance. It's not it's not necessarily intended to to put you into war as other movies have. It's more of a god's eye view of war in a way. What do you what are your feelings on that aspect of Kubrick's work that people maybe unfairly criticizes as distant?
1: Uh, I think that distance is essential to his point of view. I think he tries to have it both ways. He wants you in Full Metal Jacket, for example, to to feel the dilemmas of war, emotional and moral and so on. But you have to, I think in order to do that, uh, he insists that you have to, maintain some sort of distance from every individual character because each of the characters is different. They're so well delineated. They're all struggling in their own way to master their situation. And because he doesn't concentrate on one character alone, there are major characters and minor characters, of course, and Private Joker is probably the main character, but he's not the only one. And he wants you to be aware of the struggle of each of them, all different types. And I think that necessitates some distance, some emotional distance. Mm. I think he would disagree that there's. he doesn't want you to plug in to his characters at all emotionally. Um, and I would disagree with that, but he definitely wants you to maintain sort of one foot in and one foot out, basically the way Joker tries to do in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he tries to have it both ways. He try, You know, he's got the born-to-kill on his helmet, and he's got the peace button on his uh, lapel. He wants to be both in the Marine Corps and outside the Marine Corps, independent of it, and uh, that's a difficult game to play. And in the end, he loses, but I think Kubrick, in his role as filmmaker... Does try to
0: maintain that balance.
1: He does work yeah. orange too. Uh.
0: Well, and and his I think another reason why people stumble on this cold and distant uh, uh, label is, is that uh, unlike a lot of filmmakers, he he doesn't program you how you're supposed to feel when you view his movies. I mean, most movies you see you know exactly how you're supposed to feel. And and he seemed to me to not be afraid of ambiguity.
1: Oh, yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. yeah uh, he, and,
1: uh, no, go ahead.
0: No, please, please finish your thought. I'm sorry.
1: Um, he doesn't, I don't think he, he can lead you in certain directions, but I don't think he wants to force feed you conclusions, mm-hmm. um, whether it's, in Full Metal Jacket, uh, he doesn't really impose a, a moral view on this. Morality is definitely part of the story, but I mean, you, I, for instance, admire Joker's ability to maintain some sort of independence and his compassion. But in the end, can you do that and survive emotionally in war? I think Kubrick would have you think about that and not just assume that. Well it has to be one way or the other. Uh-huh. Um, the same way in The Shining, you're not going to, he's not going to explain everything for you. Um, you're not quite sure. Is there any kind of supernatural agent at work here or not? Um, uh-huh. In In 2001, uh, the contrast between the way he portrays um, the encounter between uh, Human beings and, and possible alien intelligence is very different than than the way Arthur Clarke does. Uh, that monolith really is difficult to explain, and I don't think he wants to provide you with an expl- explanation. You're going to have to fill that in for yourself,
0: which mm-hmm. probably
1: reveals as much about yourself as as he
0: would reveal about himself. So, well, that's exactly it. I mean, his his movies are are striking because. You know, I, I I could watch a movie like 2001 or The Shining, 15 20 years ago, and and return to them now as I have, and and they're they're different for me. They're different experiences for me. Um, you know, the, the 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 meaning and the experience deepens as I mature, um, which is which is rare. I don't find that with many with many filmmakers. Uh, you spend some time in in your book. Comparing the novels to the films and, and pointing out a couple of changes that he made um, And I, I'm curious to know What his, his relationship with the, with the source material And the changes that he makes in the process of, of putting it down to, in screenplay form What does that say about, about his process and his uh, uh, obsessions Those choices he makes in some of these projects
1: well, I think I suspect Kubrick regarded these source novels or short story, in the case of 2001, as basically raw material that he could start with and do what he wanted to. That I, I don't think that's being disrespectful to a source. Uh, the source exists by itself; it doesn't need, you know, Kubrick or his his adaptations to have its own integrity, Uh, although Mm -hmm. obviously some authors probably didn't appreciate the kind of tampering that that Kubrick did, but he does what many of his characters do, uh, which is to take something and turn it into something of their own. Um, Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining, does exactly that with the Overlook Hotel, although he... Appears to be reacting from compulsion, uh, you know, certain feelings of inadequacy and so forth. And so he's not really in control of what he makes of the Overlook Hotel and its past. But he's definitely doing it. And you can see him doing it all along, especially in his, his I would regard them as fantasies. Uh, someone else might regard them as literal supernatural happenings, you know, his encounters mm-hmm. with, with Lloyd and Grady and so forth. Um, um, Tom Cruise's character does it. <clears throat> pardon me. In um, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, and he too, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. Appears to be <laughs> reacting from um, from compulsion, but in the end, he seems to be able to work himself out of that. Uh, obviously, in Doctor Strangelove, uh, General Ripper uh, turns Sack into his personal uh, works out his own personal uh, uh, madness through an institution, you know, mm-hmm. through the, the United States military. And Doctor Strangelove does the same thing. And all of his characters, uh, Alex tries to do that. I mean, the whole first part of Clockwork Orange is, is Alex sort of taking stock of his kingdom, uh, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and and encountering various people, uh, a middle-aged couple, uh, a a gang like himself, uh, an old man, an old tramp, uh, and he's basically transforming everything into something to suit him, to serve him, obviously from an entirely selfish point of view. Uh, And I think uh, in all... Kubrick sometimes has been seen as fairly ruthless about what he does uh, with his source material. I don't believe Stephen King was real pleased with his adaptation of The Shining, but you know Kubrick doesn't—I don't think—didn't want to just sort of regurgitate exactly what his source material was. That didn't mean he didn't respect it, but he certainly regarded it as material to be transformed into whatever he wanted to make it. Mm-hmm. Just as perhaps the authors themselves took other stories or other source materials, maybe not fiction, and turned them into their novels and so forth. Right. Um, and yet what and it... Clark, for example, got along from what I understand quite well in, in writing the screenplay for 2001, and yet then Clark went out and wrote the novel and Kubrick made the film, and they're two very different entities, and, and you can respect someone you
0: work differently from. The film the film of that is a lot more ambiguous than the than the novel that resulted from it.
1: That is my impression, yeah.
0: I mean in the novel it's
1: very clear that the monolith
0: is a teaching agent.
1: And that Mm -hmm. the aliens, uh whoever they might be, um intrude in human affairs at certain key moments to definitely affect their destiny. But uh that's much more ambiguous in the film. And I guess that's one of the things that I like about Kubrick and, and, what, and his work. It turns other people off, I know that. But I talk to people who <laughs> really dislike Kubrick's films and other people. And it seems to be you either really like him or you really dislike his
0: films. Yeah, yeah it's a stro- strong reaction either way. Yeah. Um,
1: but that's all right because you know there are certain films and filmmakers or, or writers I just don't care for, but that doesn't necessarily mean I, I think they're crappy. <laughs> their work is crap. It just means yeah. that I don't respond well to it. I I don't. I can't get enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't uh, enjoy thinking about their work and try to delineate it. I'll go to someone I like, and someone else will do the same thing. In, in their
0: taste uh he's he's also fascinated in the the notion of of duality uh as it as it applies to both characters and 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 other themes and situations that he paints in his films i mean I, i'm always struck by i mean he's not he, he he's not really judgmental of his characters alex in clockwork orange is a is a thieving murderous thug but but he's also very cultured uh, and he's moved by beethoven you know and you you see that those examples of duality throughout his films what what strikes you about about that the dual the dual nature of of man as he's exploring in these movies well,
1: well for example in alex's case it's it's he is cultured but he can turn anything including great music into servants for his particular needs and desires. And his particular needs and desires are incredibly selfish, at least except for maybe one or two scenes, maybe one scene in the film, which I think is very key and very different from the novel. But um, there's nothing that can't be... just, Just as Kubrick can take a novel or a short story and turn it into something of his own, which may be very different, there's nothing that a character in his film can't absorb and transform into something they want something in their world and um you know there's a obviously a dark and a light side to that um i mm-hmm. there are um, um well, like to take uh, uh, the Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, um, you could look at him as as a sadist in some mm-hmm. regard. Except he has a role to play in the institution that is the Marine Corps. So the question is, can he uh, use? Can you use abuse? physical as well as verbal abuse, uh, racism, sexism, it's all there in his performance. It, but Can he use that to construct soldiers, to give them that, that, I don't know, that full metal jacket, that emotional and physical shield that will mm-hmm. serve them in combat, or is he a sadist? You know, I think that's a question that Kubrick raises because he acts almost as badly as Alex does. And Alex is just a flagrant, at least to begin with, uh, you know, flagrant, um, selfish person. Um, and he he wants, I think he wants you to think about that. I think that's why he never shows Sergeant Hartman in an off moment when he's out of performance, you know, when he's just, I don't know, being himself. He never shows him at home. He never shows him anywhere else. So you have to decide Is he a cruel person? Is he just like the door gunner? The helicopter door gunner that you see later on who is just a he is Alex Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. at war, simply using his role as a soldier to kill anyone he wants to down on the ground below him indiscriminately. Or is he is Hartman putting on a performance that is necessary in his role of making soldiers? Um, and you can find that in a lot of characters. I mean, they all struggle with it. Uh, there's a lot of duality. The, the chief guard in Clockwork Orange, you know, not one of the major characters, but kind of an important character because he seems to be, he hates Alex. He, he hates him with a passion, but he seems to treat Alex with a certain amount of rigid, um, how can I put this, formality. I mean, he does follow the rules. And yet, during the the Ludovico demonstration where Alex is on stage, the chief guard obviously gets some pleasure out of Alex's humiliation on stage and obviously shares some of Alex's sexual attraction to the the nude woman who's brought on stage to demonstrate Mm -hmm. Alex's inability to have sex. And so that's always there, even in minor characters. Um, They're all if you want to call them dual or, or multifaceted. And um, I find that interesting. Um,
0: and it's especially valuable in his portrayal of, of war, which is a, a setting, a, a phenomenon that he's returned to several times in his career. Uh, because, I mean, that, that illustrates the... the, the that Element of duality, more than most situations, though, because that's pretty much about the most extreme situation that you could you could find yourself in. And judging from the other war films of of the time, especially around Full Metal Jacket, what do you find was unique about his take on on war?
1: Well, I've uh... I haven't actually read the quote, but I thought I heard him quoted as saying he had made his war, anti-war film with Paths of Glory.
0: Mm.
1: And, and in Full Metal Jacket, he wanted to illustrate more, more of an illustration of how, so, uh, how, I suppose, civilians are turned into soldiers and then how they react to battle, at least that type of battle of Vietnam uh, gave them. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think in terms of like Apocalypse Now and Born on the Fourth of July and All the Rep So many of them were made around that time. Yeah. And I don't know. I guess I guess it is uh, Kubrick's inherent detachment. I, I hesitate to say indifference to because he's not. I mean, he's mm-hmm. portraying, you know, emotional and moral and, but he's always got one foot out of it because he doesn't want you totally committed. I don't think. I mean, he he wants you in it but out of it at the same time. Whereas most, um, a lot of films will uh, about war will have you usually sympathizing. Far more um, unreservedly with a particular character, or with one side or the other, or just anti-war all the way. Mm. You know, um, certainly Full Metal Jacket is not pro-war, but I think it recognizes war as a reality, and then says, "Okay, let's. What does it do to people mm-hmm. on all sides or at all levels?" And let's take a look at that. And it it doesn't, it doesn't resolve your feelings so that you leave the theater thinking, okay, I know exactly how I
0: feel about the Vietnam War. <laughs> it's yeah, not going to do yeah. that for you. And, but I, I find people question his view of humanity in, in these films.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and uh, I mean, I I don't think his view of of humanity was was easily definable. I th- I think he was accepting of of, of both of the good and and the bad and uh, and portrayed them equally. But uh, op- optimistic films, I I think that two thousand one and the Eyes Wide Shut is uh, they're both optimistic films in the end for me. Uh, yeah. What is what, what is you? What no, go ahead, please. I just wanted to know what your take on that was. Uh,
1: well, I I agree. Uh, he's not going to give you a completely happy ending. Uh, more than likely, uh, notice at the end of Eyes Wide Shot. it's sort of a tentative reaffirmation of of this marriage, you know, which had been kind of on the rocks without the two of them even realizing it at the start of the film, and and. Bill Harford uh, wants to in fact he even uses the word forever you know maybe mm. we're we're awake now from this bad dream, and we'll stay that way forever and his wife cautions him no i don 't like that word um, you know let 's just be thankful that we're awake now <laughs> mm. and uh, and it's it's the same thing well two thousand and one uh, of course does end up on a pretty positive note, uh, but it's a very, I don't know if that's a vague note. I mean, um, in I believe in the novel, uh, the star child destroys the uh, nuclear weapons orbiting Earth, if I'm not correct.
0: I think so. You don't, I think you're right.
1: Tubic doesn't give you that. It's just, it, it appears that man has adapted to some degree to his new environment, which he was so maladapted to, you know, during most of the discovery scenes, so mm-hmm. dependent on technology. So there is somewhat of an optimism there. Even on A Clockwork Orange, which ends on a viciously ironic note that, you know, Alex, reborn into his worst selfish self, uh, is now accommodated with the state. I mean, the state actually returns Alex to his his worst self, in order to promote its own political interest. So it's a horrible sort of marriage of convenience between these two. And yet there is that one scene where Alex shows some compassion for the tramp and gives him his last few coins, which I think if that's not in the book. And I disagree with Anthony Burgess, who, who condemned the film as viewing man as let's see, unable to change, unable to improve himself at all, Mm -hmm. uh, which he did, he portrayed in a different way at the end of of the novel, um, where Alex just kind of grows up, uh, learns his lesson, and sort of decides that he wants to get married and just lead a normal life. Um, Well, I think Kubrick does in a different way. He shows that Alex is not completely, unalterably, reprehensible, but that moment is destroyed because of other circumstances and and Kubrick is always aware of complications Hmm. whether it's good things happening and get complicated and unraveled by other circumstances or bad things that are happening and somehow get unraveled Uh, you know um, that's just part of his take on life and i think if i'm interpreting him correctly
0: well, he had a yes yeah and actually eyes wide shut is is my favorite kubrick film my pers- it's it's the one that kind of moves moves me the, the most and I, I find that i find that I, I get a lot of opposition to that it's it's almost a, a dirty secret if if you love eyes wide shut you you you, you tell people in whispered tones it's a uh, uh, but I wanted to go through just a couple of these films very quickly and get some thoughts from you. He had, uh, would you say, a, a, a distrust of of the establishment and, 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 and certain institutions in these in these films? Uh,
1: definitely, or at least he had an awareness, showed an awareness of how vulnerable they were to being appropriated for bad uses by individuals Mm -hmm. within them you know you can go back to paths of glory for that Mm -hmm. and see how the the generals behave Uh, they just use their institutions for personal gain or to cover up their own mistakes and and shuffle blame to someone else Um, so everything is vulnerable to exploitation including any institution you know, mm-hmm. whether it's the Marine Corps, um, uh, NASA, <laughs> whatever you want to pick, uh, the the government and clockwork Orange, the prison system, and um, but you notice in, in, in I, I find it interesting that you like uh, Eyes Wide Shut so much because that is a difficult film. I mean, some people thought it was just going to be one erotic adventure. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly is not that um it It's got some of the grimmest scenes I think Kubrick ever filmed really frightening um yeah um, but after all of their you know trials and tribulations, there is some sign of of hope for these two characters at the end, and uh, fortunately for them, it was kind of a dream you know and, and they didn't actually do things like Alex, which. Took them too far to get back to where they want to be, but yeah, it's like a Yeah. You know, I mean they well. they're kind of like Jack Torrance, except they seem to come back from the brink, and he goes over the brink.
0: Hmm. And it's interesting with the portrait of the marriage uh, and Eyes Wide Shut, and and the portrait of the marriage in The Shining. Uh, he's really in in The Shining. His view of the Wendy character, yeah. that she's, I think she's frumpier <laughs> than she was well, portrayed in the book.
1: Definitely. And the, she's a beauty yeah. in the book, from, if I remember the book correctly. And, and she's rather plain looking. I wouldn't say homely, she's just more plain looking. Mm-hmm. She has kind of a knack for for putting aside problems with with platitudes. You know, like when Jack, uh, uh, shortly uh, well, about a month after they arrive at the hotel, and and um, Jack is thinking about getting back to work, and uh, he hasn't got any good ideas yet, and she just says, "Well, you know, they just give it time, and it'll, it'll come." And he's pretty obviously kind of annoyed with that remark, mm-hmm. and and she can be annoying in ways, but she's, you know, she's the one who takes care of the hotel you see her doing it she does his job Mm -hmm. and she shields her son and she tries to uh, pacify jack she even tries to reassure him after his his nightmare you know that he confesses to which is interesting because that there's kind of a parallel there with eyes wide shot where both characters have to make confessions to each other including alice about about her dream of infidelity, Um, and she does all these things, so you see her partly through Jack's eyes, but mostly, in the end, she's quite a remarkable character, I think, because she survives this terrifying thing, and she manages to get away with her kid, to leave that room upstairs, where she and Danny are, and go down with a baseball bat in hand to try to reason with jack so they can take their son to the hotel that is quite an act of bravery and it's just yeah. as um uh scatman Crothers' character who flies all the way back from florida because he has a vague feeling that something is not right here i mean that's quite an act of courage um,
0: and, and also uh, one of the great performances i think with from shelley duvall oh, that i don't think is talked about enough uh oh, no she's I, wonderful I
1: think she's remarkable yeah. And it's difficult to play hysteria mm. for for an extended period of time and take after take after take, and um, and yet maintain some balance with with uh, her ability to act responsibly and um, try to hold things together uh, as best she can um, in an impossible
0: situation. Mm. So, with Ice White Shut, I know I was <clears throat> speaking to. Leon v- Vitali uh, uh about Eyes Wide Shut and and he was saying that he thinks that that the general interpretation that it's all a dream is 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 going a, a bit too far uh that he didn't think that was Kubrick's uh intention. Uh for me it feels like he he was very kind of comfortable in the world that he had created the Tom Cruise character. And when this revelation comes from his wife, uh, I think that's for me. That's when he realizes he's been sleepwalking through his life. Uh, what and so what do you think of the the dream element of Eyes Wide Shut?
1: Um, typically ambiguous, Kubrick. <laughs> uh, people can argue about that, and and I. I guess I do tend to think that his Odyssey, although it's not presented strictly in dreamlike terms, you know, there's no soft focus, and you don't have any sort of weird transition through the camera that says, okay, we're now entering a dream world. Mm -hmm. Uh, It all has the surface uh, reality that seems to suggest this is literally happening. But I, I, I find it interesting that so much happens to him that sexually so many temptations happen to him in the 24 hours after he discovers his his wife had thoughts of infidelity and his world kind of has, has come crashing down there. His, his confidence um and so i think i don't know i think kubrick wants it both ways at once it is Kind of dreamlike because there's, you know, how likely is it that so many temptations would have come across his plate in such a short period of time, including this incredibly elaborate uh, high society orgy, which Mm -hmm.
0: is
1: probably the scariest scene I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, And the thing with the the Christmas lights the Christmas tree lights, and maybe it's entirely possible I'm reading too much into this, but you see them from the very beginning until right towards the end when um, Bill Hartford uh, walks into his house after his final confrontation with Ziegler uh, in his apartment and he turns the lights off for the Christmas tree. Otherwise, you see them everywhere. You see them in Domino's apartment. You see them just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like okay, this dream-like episode, whether it's literally dream or not, is coming to an end. I'm unplugging the lights, and he goes in and sees the mask, and and basically makes his confession to to his wife, who already made hers to him, you know, earlier after that dream that he woke her up from. Um, and that seems to signal the, signal the end of, of kind of a dreamlike process. But, again, Kubrick doesn't, doesn't use any of the typical movie devices that tell you this is a dreamlike, you know. It's just little things, uh, like during the, the big orgy scene itself or, or when he's put on trial. And this woman who tried to warn him earlier to get out, it's dangerous here, Appears on the balcony overhead and, and basically offers herself as a substitute, as a sacrifice, I guess, for Bill. Mm. Uh, her language is, is kind of formal, the way she talks. It, it is like something artificial. Mm. And I'm sure some people think, ooh, that just doesn't sound right. Now, that sounds phony. But I'm thinking it, it is kind of dreamlike and that it sounds ritualistic to me. Um so I don't know, to tell you the truth. He does. He never wants you to feel a certain. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's part of the way he maybe viewed the world. Um, don't be certain of anything because a lot of possibilities are there. Not necessarily that aliens are going to drop in and improve your mind, but uh, but. Just when you're sure, I mean, all of the characters in, in Strange Love, I mean, think how, how how difficult it is for Buck Turgidson to even acknowledge that something might be wrong out there, out, out mm-hmm. in the world of, of uh, uh, you know, nuclear. The, the arrangement he's got, SAC, and, and the rest of it. Um, it takes him a while to even believe it. It takes Major Kong a while to be able to imagine that, well, yeah, maybe this Message they got, Wing Attack Plan R, is real. They all fight it at first. Mm. A little bit. Some are more enthusiastic, obviously. Ripper doesn't, and Strangelove, but they're on the far side of their extreme characters. They welcome it and they initiate it, but it's. I think it's always the case that that Kubrick. um, Wants you to be a little unsettled yeah. in your conclusions, and why none of us think, who who write about him, and I'm just an amateur. I'm not a professional scholar. Um, you know, I was just lucky enough to, to find a publisher that would publish my interpretation, but it's always tentative. I could be so wrong in so many areas, or at least not what he intended. But you know, once the movie's released, it's kind of in our hands.
0: Yeah, it's it's our it's our film. Him, yeah, that's right. And I think that he cherished that. I I think he cherished yeah. the different interpretations that people had of his work, mm-hmm. and they were tailored. They were tailored to 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 allow you to, kind of, read into it what you wanted in a way.
1: Yes, and hopefully they'll recognize that that's exactly what we're doing, mm-hmm. and that anyone who would say, "Well, yes, I know what Kubrick you know meant, and this is it," I don't mm-hmm. think you've appreciated that. But as long as we're willing to say that, yeah, we're, you know, we're imposing some things of our own, or we may see things from an angle that is illuminating but not complete. Hmm. Somebody else would add something else. Like one of the books I read after mine was published was uh, um, the Jeffrey Jeffrey Cox book, *The Wolf at the Door*.
0: The Holocaust, the Stanley Kubrick yeah, and the Holocaust, a, yeah.
1: A reinterpretation of the, of the Shining as basically Kubrick's Holocaust movie. Uh, mm. And that's interesting. I I think I saw parts of that, elements of it, and it, it touched on it, but certainly not to the extent that he did, and that was kind of interesting to me.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: Again, I don't know that that's what Kubrick intended, but there are some very intriguing possibilities there. Um, I was There's thought,
0: also... Go ahead. I'm so sorry, but there's also uh, an element of mystery in his films that that I love. I I, I mean, the the purpose for me in watching a 2001 or The Shining is is not to figure it completely out, necessarily. Uh, I mean, I'm comfortable with part of that being a mystery to me, because I I find that, all right, I I figured out 2001. Next, you know, (laughs) I've got that down. I could go to the next film, but... uh, uh, just a quick question about two thousand one and his view of technology uh you know the, the the most famous kind of shot cut in cinema history uh, with the with the throwing of the bone and, and and a quick cut to the the armed satellite and he's basically ignored four million years of evolution in, in between the, that those those moments uh what is what is he saying about technology and the fact that Hal seems to be the most personable Human character in that latter part of that film. Well, I think um,
1: one of the things Kubrick likes to deal in is reality versus illusion. There are a lot of things that you think you know what's going on until a later scene, and then oh, that's not what was going on back then. I think the same thing applies to HAL, and of course that hinges on the question: Does HAL possess consciousness? Or Mm -hmm. is he just a very good facsimile of human consciousness? And um, certainly Hal does an awful lot in in discovery. I mean, he basically runs the ship. He does the routine, I suppose, course changes, everything. Uh, The the astronauts are kind of, what would be the word, superfluous? Mm-hmm. To, to the running of the ship. I mean, the ship is there to take them from point A to point B, and Hal is there to facilitate it, but he does so much more than they do. And it has rendered, I mean, he even possesses knowledge, or if he does possess knowledge, of of uh, some of, of, I don't know, you call it the council or ground controls, uh, some parameters of the mission are known to HAL that are not known to the the two astronauts who are conscious on board because right. the people back home don't trust the individual astronauts as much as they do HAL. who's supposed to be perfect. Now, whether he's conscious or not is another matter because he is, as one of the characters Dave, I think, points out, or maybe Frank, that uh, he's programmed, to appear conscious, because to, re- to, to be human-like in order to make him easier for the astronauts to deal with. So whether he's a facsimile or not, but I find that intriguing. He does seem more human at times, mm-hmm. not always, but especially before the crisis occurs. Then I think uh, I think Dave Bowman does appear very human. He's everybody yeah. he has to suppress it. He's afraid, but he has to suppress it because he has to you know try to recover frank uh from space and he has to try to get back into the spaceship and he has to try to dismantle Hal, so he has to maintain his composure, which is another thing I think a lot of people overlook who think that Kubrick is just one you know uh, long line of, of cynicism in his films That's all he presents um, I think Dave is a remarkable character, mhm. He, he survives a heck of a lot, and he, he does his best to rescue Frank or at least recover his body. And He gets informed at the very worst moment that was not intended. He gets informed of the, of the uh, discovery of the monolith and the purpose of the discovery mission, uh, the mission to Jupiter, um, at exactly the moment when he's had his battle to the death with, uh, with uh, Hal, and yet he manages to pursue that mission. He goes on with it to Jupiter. Mm. Um, that's quite an impressive portrait. But, you know, Kubrick was a, from what I understand from looking at the documentaries and so forth, he was a gadget freak. He liked technology, but yeah. he was very ambiguous. I mean, he recognized that it's potentially uh, harmful in some ways. Uh, dangerous in some ways. Um, he liked all the gadgets and the, the new film technologies and everything else, and he used them. Um, so I, I don't think you can say outright that he he hated technology. It was some sort of luddite, I guess the word is. But um,
0: and he himself uh, advanced advanced the oh, film yeah. technology.
1: You know, yeah. and mm-hmm. was not I don't think ashamed of doing so. Um, but. Uh, and the same, even in *Strange Love*, where, you know, for crying out loud, it's a B-52, but there is a certain beauty to it. It's just, it's, its potential to be misused in the wrong hands is, is there. And um, I think 2001 just advances that further. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Major mm-hmm.
1: Kong has an autopilot that he uses until the signal for wing attack plan R comes through, and then he takes over. So, but CRM-114, which is another mechanism, prevents him from getting any word from President Muffley that this mission is fake, stop, you know. So Hmm. there's there's ambiguity there. But in 2001, the technology is even further than that. Man is even more dependent and less useful um, in space than, than he was in SAC, I guess
0: well that, speaking to um M- mario Falsetto, uh we spoke to last week and he also has uh, uh books on Q- on kubrick uh and, and we were chatting about some of these themes and that he that kubrick seems to be saying yes yes the technology we've we've come up with is is incredible but uh at what cost? I mean, is is it worth it if we sacrifice our humanity in the process? And he even uh, relates that to a movie like Barry Lyndon, uh, which we haven't discussed yet. Where do you see uh, where do you see Barry Lyndon fitting into to, to Kubrick's palette?
1: I I really like Barry Lyndon. Um, I think he. He, I he doesn't like to – it's like every movie he makes in some respects, maybe only aesthetically, is kind of a reaction against the movie he made before hmm. uh, to me. And, of course, A Clockwork Orange is a ruthlessly modern, as of that time, and contemporary, and has the contemporary look to it, and – and um, postulates a society that's very, very, the individual can get by with an awful lot of stuff. And I think he wanted to go to a new area that's very different. And Barry Lyndon was that. Um, you look at a very different set of, of customs, of social mores, a very different world. He portrayed, I think, the, the struggle for. Power and mastery over one's own life and fortunes is the same, in a sense, in Barry Lyndon as it is in Clockwork and others, or, or 2001 for that matter. You know, Dave and Frank trying to get along in outer space with Hal. But it's, it's aesthetically so different mm-hmm. that things, you know, you're not going to solve everything with a punch or a stab, whatever, or, or a bit of ultraviolence. There are moments like that in Barry Lyndon, but they're rare and they're shocking because they're so rare. And I think he just, you know, it's a very different world, but in the same way it's it's a very similar world in terms of human behavior and human struggle and the ethical dilemmas. Um, and, of course, Barry himself, Redmond Barry, is, at least to start with, he is a much nicer human being. He's a more noble human being than than Alex is at the beginning. Of mm-hmm. So that's a very different... And, um, of course, he becomes a bit corrupt. But even later on, he has moments when when he kind of redeems himself. Sometimes at the cost of his own... Control over his life, you know, he could have killed Lord Bullington at the end because Lord Bullington misfires during their duel. He has the first shot, he misfires. Right. It's Barry's shot. He could have killed him. He's very good at dueling. We know that. He takes pity on the kid, and it costs him. It costs him his leg. It costs him his most of his fortune. It costs him Lady Lyndon. And it does appear that at one point in the film, he he has a reconciliation with Lady Lyndon, even though he treats her like dirt to start with, like a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's just a very different setting very different aesthetics and I think Kubrick likes to do that he likes to explore flex the same muscles but in a different context and um, I think Barry Lyndon had some problems at the box office because let's face it in the mid-70s what would normally be regarded as a costume epic that those were not in favor at the time. Of course, Kubrick doesn't do costume ethics like anyone else's costume ethics. It's not just throw on some clothes and let's let's leave it at that. Uh, there's much more going
0: on. Well, and it seemed it seemed out of time uh, at that time. I'm sure. I mean, when we were. I mean, this this was on the heels of Star Wars, wasn't it? Uh, well, this is 1975,
1: so it's a couple of years before. 75, of right, okay. But you know, okay. it's around the time of Star Wars. It's around the time of Taxi Driver and one mm. film at Cuckoo's Nest. And this was not. Most of the, the big costume epics, the spectaculars, were done in the late 50s and through the 60s. They were kind of fading out as the 60s ended as a popular right. genre. It could be that Kubrick. Kubrick's desire to explore a very different world from Clockwork, and I'm speculating here, that's all, uh, might have led him to Barry Lyndon at a time when that was not going to be as popular as it might have been. And even Mm -hmm. then, I mean, he, one thing about Kubrick, he's never afraid to pace his movies the way he thinks they ought to be paced. If he thinks this should be slow, and some people hate that, you know and and that's their right too but i ha- i don't have a problem with following Kubrick's scene when he's because there are so many interesting things going on in those scenes, whether it's in two thousand and one, where you see in quite detail uh, as one of the astronauts goes out to i don 't know replace that faulty mechanism outside mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he's not afraid to play that out at. A slow pace because the pace itself says something about the relationship, I guess, of of the characters to their environment. Or, in Barry Lyndon's case, the characters to the, the world of nature or to the social rules of the time, the customs. This is the way things are done. You, this is the way the characters are going to act through those customs, occasionally violating them. Like when, Barry, yeah, when when Redmond attacks Lord Bullington after Lord Bullington interrupts the concert—that's part of Barry's plan to acquire a title. Yes, and he loses it, and that's what destroys that quest for a title. That's what destroys his quest to master his life and become secure—not only for himself, mm. but for his own son. You know, he just goes nuts, and and homicidally attacks Lord Bulletin, except he's restrained by other characters. You know, he does things out of character every once in a while are or, or, or against the, the normal way of doing things. Um, he shows compassion to Captain Potsdorf when, you know, he could have just let him die there. Potsdorff enslaved him to the Prussian army, you know. Mm. Um but Barry Lyndon is interesting. I I don't know. Kubrick might have he had a lot of success before that. Um maybe he thought he could make it popular. I think maybe he thought it would probably be more
0: popular than it was,
1: but he
0: was heartbroken. But yeah. yeah, as of my understanding, he was heartbroken by its box office failure. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. But, you know, Kubrick's movies have legs and They're around for reassessment decades later. Oh, yeah. um, Even though I don't think Barry Lyndon will ever be popular in in the sense of a lot of movies, um, I think it's better appreciated today than... And I like it. I'm very fond of it.
0: I think so, too. Do you you think, because we've been talking about his his, uh, portrayal of institutions, be it NASA or the government or the military complex. Do you think he's making a statement about the institutional class in Barry Lyndon?
1: Definitely, definitely. I think his uh, side, uh, when he does attain status, marries Lady Lyndon, uh, lives in this fabulous palace. Um, He tells. Uh, bedtime stories to his son about Mm -hmm. the war and they are hopelessly glamorized idealized you know he is the hero he's not a deserter which is what he was he's not uh, forced into service the way he was in in the german or the prussian army he he's he's the king's hero he uh, lops off the heads of the enemies and he's so once he attains status, then it's in his interest to reinforce the, uh, the status quo, I guess, or the powers that be. Same thing with his attitude towards Lady Lyndon. I mean, as soon as he becomes master of the house, almost, not quite financially, he kind of treats her like dirt. And I think the narrator conveys to us that he um, he favored a very quiet life for his wife, after she uh, bore him a son. Well, of course he does, because he's playing around with everyone else. <laughs> so in order to keep her in his play in, in the place he wants her for that time, he's very much in favor of the tradition that keeps the woman there in the house, occupied with her children. Yeah. It's only later on when he apologizes to her that she seems to come out of her shell and things are a little better between them but that's because he seems to have a natural goodness about him that resurfaces even though he's acting like a cad right <laughs> and and uh, you know he pays for acting like for for his moments of generosity as with the duel Lord Bullington. and of course in the end I love the fact that the, the annuity check that uh, Lady Lyndon signs reads 1789. Well, that's the year of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, that didn't destroy all of the old feudal system, but it certainly started the downfall of it. And then you have a little postscript that Kubrick inserts that you know all of these people, high or low, beautiful or ugly, good or bad, this is in the past. They're all equal now. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. Kubrick's way of leveling the Playing field, you know, we've all got a common fate, and it doesn't matter where you stood in this society, you're you're toast now. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, just a little reminder that you're, we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. The past three hours, where he spent showing all this inequality and the struggle for power within that uh, that sort of closed social world that the world itself was about to come to an end. And not only the individuals, not only Redmond Barry, who sort of disappears from sight at the end, but Lord Bullington, all of them, they're gone, but also that whole system was on the verge in 1789 of, of a radical restructuring or whatever you want to call it, partial destruction. Yeah.
0: And of it's course,
1: gor- he in with his Napoleon film, which never did... Um, come to fruition.
0: Oh, isn't that one of the great the great mysteries uh what he would have done with Napoleon?
1: Yeah. Cuz uh, was a man who, you know, tried to master everything. You know, mm-hmm. And failed in the end, but boy, that would incorporate almost every Kub- uh character in every Kubrick movie into that that character. It would have been a challenge, you know. It would have been a hard Film to make and make successful, but I think if anyone could have done it, it would have been it would have been Kubrick. I
0: think absolutely
1: about that same thing in the other films in different ways, in, in many other characters.
0: Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask about uh, Orson Welles. You 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 wrote another book on Orson Welles, analyzing several of his films, correct? Yeah. yeah. Do Do you see parallels? between the two these two you know they're the they're the titans of american cinema yeah.
1: i do uh, orson has always also been accused of, of kind of coldness of some sort of detachment from his characters and his stories and i think for similar reasons um he's i i suppose the analogy i would make with orson is uh, you know he was a magician an amateur magician mm-hmm. as well and he he deals very much in illusion and reality. Things seeming to be one thing, but no, there's there's more to it than that. And he'll let you know, and very much in the way that Kubrick does. Uh, they have their different styles, of course. But um, um, I, I think they have a similar, or perhaps had a similar view of the world. And... Uh, That worked out in their films. Um, Yeah. Except that Orson was perhaps made his films at a time when the studio system was a little tighter, quite a bit tighter. And if you start, you know, at least in the 40s during World War II, I don't think the world was, I don't think America was really ready for. A film like *The Magnificent Ambersons*, which I think is a wonderful film, even in its truncated form. But again, it it explores um, an American family at a time, in, in nostalgic terms, but it's bittersweet nostalgia. He he undercuts everything, and so many films of that time that look back. Uh, um oh, oh, what's the movie with the the musical with um, Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli made it. Uh, we're looking back at America, let's say, in the late 19th century or the early 20th century. They did so with this unabashed nostalgia. And Orson had the nostalgia, but he also undercut it. And, and I don't think the studios, maybe not the audience, certainly not the studios, Plus, uh, we're in the mood for it. Plus, he pissed off some studio heads, and and they got their revenge. He still had a very great career, though, as an independent filmmaker, who occasionally got back into the studio to do some interesting things. And at least there have been efforts to uh, restore some of his work, like In Touch of Evil, which I think is a great movie. Um, But Kubrick was born or worked later. He started certainly in the studio system and Spartacus I think was kind of the from what I've read was the breaking point for him. He was kind of a hired hand on that film. He was not really in charge of it. Uh, That was more of a Kirk Douglas production with Kubrick just providing the direction and uh, I think that decided for him I don't want to do it the Hollywood way I'm going to try to do it my own way and fortunately he had enough success with Lolita, and really strange love, I think, mm-hmm. that he found studios at that time, they were a little looser, a little more willing to grant um, filmmakers the right to final cut. Um, he found studios willing to back him. And he had enough commercial success, so
0: he maintained that freedom. And
1: that was tough, you know.
0: And Kubrick Kubrick was just... Uh... He was magnificent in, in in the fact that he could make commercial art films uh, for the for the most part, the, the movies that serve the commercial needs, but also serve the the the, the greater kind of right uh, artistic conversation.
1: At a time where, if you want to call them art films, were were getting commercial success. I mean, they were. That whole system was kind of breaking down, and uh, Kubrick and Scorsese and Coppola and the rest, you know, they were the names above the titles now. And and they were getting the commercial success and Academy Award recognition, even though Kubrick never got a Best Director award, but nevertheless. um, I mean, you can point to a few. I mean, Hitchcock certainly had some of that status in an earlier era. Yeah. But even he had to buck the studios and, and make compromises um, along the way. But uh, he, I think Kubrick, it was a combination of his ability to, I think, impress people and maybe even dominate them in some ways. Um, he
0: he got away with a lot at Warner Brothers, Um well, they wanted the next Kubrick film, yeah. They they would do anything to to get it. But also, he was very uh, smart about about production and, and and costs. He wasn't he wasn't this runaway director that just spent freely, as I understand it. I mean, he had minimal right. crew because he wanted the luxury of time. And when I think of Orson Welles, uh, man, how, how he could have flourished even more than he did with that kind of. Uh, creative uh, autonomy, in a way, with, with, with a, with a no. deal like Kubrick had.
1: Yes. Uh, Orson, had the one saving grace is that he was a relatively famous actor, so he mm-hmm. could go off and act in films, get a fee, even films he didn't have much regard for, and uh, get a pretty hefty fee for it, and then use that money, pile that money back into his productions. So if my understanding is correct, that's how he did um, Othello. You know, he filmed part of it. Run out of money? Go do a film in Europe for somebody, and come back with money, and reassemble the cast, and find a new location to shoot in, and and move on with it. And um, I think even *Times at Midnight*, which is a great film, I think he had he. um, I think that was the one where he. Maybe not, where he had promised to do uh, simultaneously a film of Treasure Island or something like that. At any rate, he he used his acting career to fuel his movie making uh, dreams. And he was able to do that, not as much as he wanted to, of course, and never with the studio backing that that Kubrick had. And that allowed Kubrick to kind of make this fortress at home. And, uh, you know, I don't buy into the idea that he was an eccentric lunatic. Mm-hmm. A hermit, anything like that. But he obviously created a home environment that he liked. He liked to work there. He wasn't going to go to Southeast Asia to recreate scenes for Full Metal Jacket. You know, he'd import what he needed and find locations that could pass for uh, Hawaii City, I believe it was, and, um, and get it done where he wanted to. And, and that he could do that is just kind of astonishing to me.
0: Well, I know that Kubrick was a, was, a, was a tremendous admirer of Orson Welles. And there's based on a story that I heard that one of his associates was going to be an event honoring Orson Welles. And, and Kubrick went to his, his massive archive of boxes and found it because it kept everything. And he found a newspaper clipping of an a, a original review of Citizen Kane that was just damning. And mm-hmm. said, "Give this, give this to Orson. <laughs> you know, to show him that you know they're they're not always right. You know, it takes time to, for people to catch up to our work in a way." And um, I think
1: you know, there's not a lot of probably references in in Orson Welles to Kubrick, but mm-hmm. there's that one quote that he, I think it's occurs in the maybe the Bogdanovich interviews. Uh, and which he refused, uh, refers to Kubrick as, as a giant. Now, of course, Orson Welles was a very, no pun intended, mercurial mercurial character.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, he would be just as likely to, if you quoted him on something, he would be just as likely to contradict you on it, just for the sake of contradicting you. He didn't want to be pinned down. But I, I think he probably recognized Kubrick as a uh, um, not an ally necessarily, but a uh,
0: someone similar to himself. Yeah, Kindred kind, kind of yeah
1: his own way. Yeah.
0: Is, is is there a filmmaker that you're you're eager to in, investigate as, as you have these two?
1: Well probably Hitchcock. Mhm. Uh, at least some of his films. Um I I don't know if I'm ever gonna try and get something published again, but uh for example, I've spent a lot of time lately with, uh, with The Birds, which I think is a highly underrated Hedgecock movie, <laughs> and um, I find that fascinating. Um, of course, he has a different way of doing things and different aesthetics, but uh, that's kind of what's occupying me lately. But I, I'll tell you this, in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've watched all the Kubrick films I have again, and... Um, it's just kind of fun to read it, though. <laughs> it's just a reminder of how, how rich that output is. Oh, yeah. I know in in my Kubrick book, um, I stated, I started with Strange Love and ended with Eyes Wide Shut, and I made some comments about um, uh, Paz of Glory and Gloria and the Lita that they, you know, they kind of were made before Kubrick. uh found his true voice but i'm Mm -hmm. I'm thinking really i was limited in space i could only do what i wanted to do if i limited the number of films i covered and um, i would say having watched lolita and paths of glory and even the killing and killers kiss again that you know they're all worthy of i would like to have um, included them as well and even spartacus although that's more of a hired hand job it's it has things in it that kind of lend themselves to Kubrick's things, even though there are other things in them that definitely don't. Um, but um, I mean, Lolita is quite an amazing film too. Paths of Glory, can, obviously remarkable.
0: But uh... yeah, Paths of Glory. I I just rewatched. I've, I've rewatched all of them too. But the the new Criterion of uh, release of Passive of Glory and uh i think it's just it's going to be a revelation to, to people that haven't seen it until now uh in they did we actually oh, okay. one of one of the people in our in our series is the the producer the Criterion producer mm-hmm. <clears throat> behind that release uh, and it's a beautiful uh it's a beautiful release and, and what a what a an extremely emotional film oh, uh yeah. you know
1: That is gritty on so many levels. It's just, you know, the way, uh, the different breakdowns, the characters. um, You know, uh, one is, uh, what's his name? I'm trying to find the credits here for everybody. Um, uh, Captain Paris. Mm -hmm. And... um, Farrell, I believe his name, is played by Timothy Carey. I mean, the way they're different, and of course, uh, uh, Joseph Turkel. Yeah. um, The way they handle their situation and the way each of them breaks down in different ways at different times. I mean, no, they're they're not, they're so well delineated. You know, the different Mm -hmm. potential, it's as though Kubrick is saying, well, all kinds of things could happen to you if you're faced with this sort of unfair death sentence and um and it's true he he there's such a rich variety in that film of different characters and different reactions and it's it's such good performances and it's just good all the way around
0: um, yeah very much i like
1: hear criterion criterion is a great company because they released um um an orson welles film and uh, mr Arcadon.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and put it in some kind of shape. Now we don't have as, as much information about how that should have, how Wells intended that film to be, as we do on Touch of Evil, because he put made pretty extensive notes on that, and uh, and uh, somebody at Universal then attempted to put it back together in the way he wanted, as best they could, uh, but. I think uh, cotton is a remarkable film. I mean, true, uh, a new editor has sort of pieced it together, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully in the way Wells would have wanted, but we know it, it wouldn't be exactly the same. But now it makes, to me, a lot more sense than, than it did when it was just thrown together by a producer who ignored Wells' wishes. And it actually made a film out of something that really wasn't much of a film um, in the producer's hands. And uh, it's it's wonderful what some of these companies can do with uh, to sort of I wouldn't say clean up the legacy but restore the legacy. Yeah, yeah. Of these
0: Filmmakers. Criterion is essential. Yeah, I I have uh I have the F for fake the, the Orson Welles. Yeah. I do I do have that here, and also I've heard I read it uh, probably a year two years ago that they discovered. Uh, this long-lost Orson Welles film, and Bogdanovich was editing it and piecing it together. It, it, it's never been seen before. I think Something something in the Wind is the last part of the title.
1: Oh, The Other Side of the Wind?
0: The Other Side of the Wind, yes. That's exactly okay. it. Yeah. So the, the, we'll, we'll, have we'll have a new Orson, have, Orson Welles movie soon. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I mean, finally, Times uh, at Midnight, which is one of my favorites, uh, finally came out. Not mm-hmm. perhaps in the best versions, but uh, pretty decent. Uh, I'm still disappointed that uh, the Magnificent Ambersons hasn't come out. I'm sure it would be fun if the missing, what is it, 40 minutes, would be destroyed, yeah. But I think that's gone. I've never heard of it being discovered.
0: I think I think Robert Weiss said it was destroyed, or that it, yeah. it is definitely gone. Ugh.
1: Yeah. But uh, which is terrible because it's yeah. such a good film. I think. But at least what's left of it, which is very good, uh, should be out on DVD, and I don't quite understand why it isn't. Uh,
0: yeah. another yeah, and
1: Desire will someday come.
0: <laughs> Apparently I Kubrick, it is, against it, it Kubrick's is. wishes. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it's coming out on DVD the, the, by the end of this year, I think.
1: That's uh, good. Uh, I know Kubrick didn't really want that, or I've read that he didn't really want that film released, but...
0: I'd like to see it. Mhm, me too. And there's three unproduced screenplays that he did that that his son-in-law is, has picked up and is producing and I, one of them is called Lunatic at Large and they've cast Sam Rockwell and Scarlett Johansson. It was something Kubrick was doing with Jim Thompson or, uh, or yeah, Jim Thompson mm-hmm. back in the late 50s. So that legacy's awesome. continuing too. So, yeah.
1: I'd like to ask I, I, you a question. Please. If if you don't mind. Um the casting of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and Eyes Wide Shut. hmm Do you think um in Full Metal Jacket he deliberately picked actors who were not terribly well known. Right. Um, that seems to alternate too. I mean, um in The Shining of course you had Jack Nicholson, then you had a bunch of relative unknowns, and then Full Metal or, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. You have two very prominent stars. Um, he he seems to have different philosophies of casting depending on what film and what he made before. Uh, do you think? Uh, why do you think he chose those two?
0: I was thinking about this the the, the other night, and I, I, I I'm not exactly certain. I, I I know that it wasn't. I feel that it wasn't. The fact that they were married—I mean, uh, that was just a, an added bonus," he said. But um, and there's something about Tom Cruise in that he, he's pretty—I hate to use the word blank—but uh, he—he's a—he's pretty naive, and and like I said earlier, he sleepwalks through his. Yeah, uh, yeah he seems to be sleep. He's not a very proactive as you're used to seeing Tom Cruise being. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I don't know how, why he chose them or, or uh, it's interesting how he chose to use, use their stardom in a way yeah. to, uh, against expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I wish I had a be- I wish I had a good answer for you. Uh, well, no, but that's,
1: that's interesting because I wondered the same thing myself. I, I I like the Mena. Mhm. I like what Kubrick does with them, but it is it's a very different um set of expectations, at least at least for Cruz. Um, and it's didn't he consider using
0: oh, who was the other Steve guy? Martin. He was he was considering Steve Martin for a long time because he loved he loved the jerk. And I think of Steve Martin, and *Ice Wide shut does not come to mind. So, I, wow, it, it was very curious. I, I don't yeah. know. Uh, um, and Nicole Kidman other, um, is breathtaking in that movie. Nicole Kidman—it's one of the great performances in his in his movies, I think, from Nicole oh, Kidman I in think that. extraordinary.
1: Where she's Ugh. recounting her 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 encounter—that's a bad way to put it. Where she's telling. Her husband about uh, her her fantasy naval officer mhm uh and I never know uh exactly okay, is she telling us something that actually happened, or I mean since she's already a bit high on on pot is she because she wants to stir her husband, she wants him to know that he's taking her for granted mm. um, she could even be inventing it, mhm. Uh, which I find intriguing. I mean, odds are no, she she really did have that encounter, which was not a not actual infidelity. It was just a a fantasized infidelity. Um, but she definitely wants to make him jealous at that point, and she does such an effective job of either inventing this story or recounting it. And It's very very powerful.